boy. I'm talking about our life. You're talking about nude pictures. Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here this week to talk about the Jane Mansfield story. Thanks for tuning in, folks. <laughs> it's going to be a wild ride. Oh yeah, with a full figure. That's right. So we're here to talk about one of Arnold's first dramatic roles. Maybe his first dramatic role, because he'd done you know, Hercules in New York. He had done uh, the villain slash Cactus Jack. But here we're seeing Arnold really trying to stretch his dramatic muscles. I guess maybe he'd done Stay Hungry. This is like prologue, Arnold. This is prologue. This is right before the stardom. But you can see that they're positioning this guy as a major star. At least on TV at this point. Well, they are. And this is... I mean, we already talked about the villain. I mean, the villain obviously had him working with some big stars at the time. With Kirk Douglas. And And uh, Anne-Margaret. And Anne-Margaret. And the horse. And of course the horse. But, the of course horse. Yeah. But uh, the Jane Mansfield story had him working uh, with Lonnie Anderson, who I think was also a rising star at the time. She may have even been popular at this point for that show WKRP in Cincinnati. I don't know if that was a 70s show or an 80s show or when that aired. I can't remember. I just know it was on TV at some point, at a point in my life where I either didn't care or wasn't alive. <laughs> and that when reruns showed later into my, you know, uh, early years, I really was not interested in watching it. Oh, I thought it was a great show, but I... Oh, I, really? But I, I couldn't tell you uh, uh, when it actually aired. How many episodes do you think you watched? Uh... Lots. I've, I probably watched. Uh, I probably watched a couple dozen, anyways. Really? Yeah. How, however many they had. It was one of those rerun shows that they'd have on TV. Okay. Yeah. I always skip that. I always skip that and Mama's Family. <laughs> um, so for those of you just tuning in, we're talking about WKRP in Cincinnati. <laughs> but it's kind of. I think a, you know it makes sense. We're going to be talking about old TV shows because yeah, the Jane Mansfield story was a TV movie on CBS in 1980. It aired on. October 29th, which was a Wednesday. And now, Tony, this was just a few days, I think eight days before my birthday, and about three weeks before yours. So does this make us... The, uh, well, you're, you're setting us up for identity theft here, I know, Kim. but does this mean that we were born in the year of the Jane Mansfield story when we look at the Schwarzenegger filmography? If we assign years based on his films to our lives... I'd say it does. Uh, is that depressing? I don't think so. That's the kind of thing. I, I, I don't know if I'd uh, translate it to Latin and put it on my family crest. <laughs> but uh, I don't mind. In fact, it's an honor just to be born in a year that Arnold Schwarzenegger released a movie. <laughs> now, it's safe to say neither of us had seen the Jane Mansfield story, right? No, to be honest, until I... Uh, did this podcast with you i'd never even actually heard of the jane mansfield story okay i had heard of it i remember back in the day arnold dropping you know mentions of it in the odd interview or something but it was also something that it sounded in no way appealing for me to track down and watch especially when i found out it was a tv movie it's like okay i don't care uh but i was very intrigued to watch this 
What about you? Absolutely. Uh, I think we had a lot of fun uh, watching Hercules uh, in New York. The most fun. <laughs> well, we had a lot of fun talking about it. We didn't have yeah. that much fun watching it. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward actually to watching Stay Hungry when we get to that one. But I think there's something kind of appealing to watching some of Schwarzenegger's earlier, lesser-known works, especially something like this, like uh, a made-for-TV movie surrounded by fairly decent character actors and none other than the great Lonnie Anderson. Right. What is your familiarity with Lonnie Anderson? Uh, mostly tabloids. Yeah, like I feel like I know her name. Uh, I knew it when I was young as well, and... I don't think it's based on anything I've ever seen her in. I don't think I've watched a single TV show with her in it that I know of. You obviously watch WKRP in Cincinnati, like, daily. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All so, through your teen years. Absolutely. But uh, that was not the case for me. I've never really seen her in anything, I don't think. Um, wasn't she married to Burt Reynolds? Yeah, she was married to Burt Reynolds for uh, quite some time, and uh, they had a spectacular spectacular divorce uh, which right. was tabloid fodder for many years was she on picket fences with him I, I can't recall i couldn't tell you okay well as we continue down the trail of vintage tv references let's talk a bit about you know what was in the air when uh, the jane mansfield story aired now going through some old tv uh, guide information i managed to track down what aired October 29th, 1980, that Wednesday? You actually tracked that information down? I did. I'm impressed. Thank you. And so you had basically your, you know, just the three big networks at that point in time. So what CBS was going up against was on ABC, you had Taxi, Soap, and Vegas. And in uh, NBC, you had the movie of the week. And that's all it said. And I was like, not happy with that answer. So I went digging deeper into the archives to track down what the NBC Movie of the Week was. You're a TV movie paleontologist. On October 29th, 1980. And I'll have you know, it was Richard Donner's The Omen that aired that night from, I believe, 1976, I think it was made. But really? it's a really good movie. Really great movie. Yeah, I mean, people still talk about that one today. Yeah. And uh, so what was big in that fall season? I'm sure you're wondering what were the top ten. Do tell pro, what were the top ten programs in the fall season on TV in 1980, the year of my birth. At number one, you had Dallas. Of course. At, at number two, you had the Dukes of Hazard. Wow. At number three, you had 60 Minutes. I think that's still number three. <laughs> number four, you had Mash. Number five, The Love Boat. Number six, The Jeffersons. Number seven, Alice. Tied for number eight, you had House Calls and Three's Company. And at number ten, you had Little House on the Prairie. So some that are still uh, fairly well-known and recognizable. Others that have maybe dropped off the radar a bit. What the hell is House Calls? I, I couldn't tell you. I've never seen it. And what about Alice? Was that based on the Woody Allen movie? Like a spinoff, maybe? Maybe it was based on the Lewis Carroll book. <laughs> Which one? Through the Looking Glass. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, a little bit of uh, other interesting trivia. The TV movies of that year that were really, really big and popular, this one is not listed among them. I'm not surprised. You had The Guiana Tragedy, the story of Jim Jones, starring Powers Booth and Ned Beatty. You had The Return of the King, the animated Rankin and Bass movie that finished up that Lord of the Rings trilogy they did. Uh, it's, I think, mostly notable, not for its animation or for its quality, but for the fact it cast John Huston as Gandalf, and he has right. a really great voice. And then lastly, you had the Scarlet O'Hara War, 
starring Tony Curtis, which was actually kind of a big deal. It was a TV movie chronicling the very, very, very difficult search to find a Scarlett O'Hara for the original Gone with the Wind in 1939. Okay, yeah, I've not seen that one. I believe that is actually on the Gone with the Wind Blu-ray set, which I do have, but I have not dug into, you know, <laughs> disc seven of the special features to yeah, really well, find me, that one. Me neither. Let me know how it is. Yeah, oh, sure. I'll get right on it. After this one, I'm so eager to watch 1980s TV movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, that kind of wraps up my TV info. Um, I think it's kind of interesting, though, to just note, there is not a lot of making of stuff on this movie. Like, you know they just cranked this thing out yeah. over, like, a week. There's no special features disc for the Jane Mansfield story. Definitely not. The one thing I did find that was kind of interesting was that Lonnie Anderson, you know, won the role, but Valerie Perrine lobbied hard for it and really, really wanted to play Jane Mansfield. Now, Valerie Perrine, for people who don't recognize the name, she played Miss Tessmacher in uh, Richard Donner's Superman. A lot of Richard Donner references going on in this episode. Right. But uh, just wait till we get to the Goonies. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. And conspiracy theory. <laughs> But yeah, like, you know, you, you're familiar with Valerie Perrine, right? A little bit? Uh, well, I know her from Superman now that you've mentioned her, but sure. I, I couldn't tell you anything else she's been in. Was she in Slaughterhouse-Five? Did you ever see that movie? I saw it. I couldn't tell you. I think she's in the alien zoo with him, with the protagonist. Whatever the case. <laughs> I don't know. Let's get back Let's to the Jane Let's get to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we sat down... And we watch this movie, and you can all do it too. It's on YouTube. It's shh, free. Shh, you're gonna get someone arrested. <laughs> it's free. You do not have to spend a cent on any sort of streaming platform or go to the effort of uploading viruses into your computer, trying desperately to track down a copy of this movie. Yeah, it's right there. That's how we watched it. That's right. In fact, I think I'm just gonna put a link on the blog as well in the show notes. Shh, you're gonna get us arrested. <laughs> but Tony. We are fresh off this movie. We finished it maybe like 20 minutes ago. But before we get into it, I am curious, what was your familiarity with Jane Mansfield? I knew her as a competitor to Marilyn Monroe, a 1950s, 60s blonde bombshell uh, pin-up and playboy model. But I, I didn't really know much about her beyond that. Yeah, had you ever seen a Jane Mansfield movie that you know of? No, and if I'm being totally honest, I still haven't. Mm-hmm. I had never seen one either, and I actually watch a ton of old movies. I'm always tracking down stuff, especially from her time period. I watch a lot of 1950s movies, yep. and yet I had never watched one of hers. And so when we were going to do this episode, I, I looked at her filmography on IMDb because I, I was looking for titles that I might recognize, and I recognized none of them. And so I hopped over to just the streaming platform on um, uh, the, the iTunes store to see what I could find, just what was available. And there was only like three. And one of them's a documentary. Like she only had two of her real movies up there. Oh, really? And uh, so I watched the two of them. And I'll kind of get into them a little bit later, I think. But um, yeah, she's someone who's, despite her popularity at the time, I feel like her legacy has greatly dimmed. My, I think, only real source of info on her before this whole, you know, podcast uh, concept floated our way to do um, was... Uh, the mention of her name in that Seinfeld episode with Terry Hatcher. Right, I know the one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, the implant, I think it's called. They're and, real and they're magnificent. Yes. And, uh, yeah, Jerry mentions Jane Mansfield's um, 
primary assets, I suppose. Yes. But uh, that was the only familiarity I had with her. But she's, I know, a bit of a cult legend. Like, I know the punk scene was really into her for some reason because of her early death. Right. But, uh, you know, what is this movie about, Tony? Well, uh, for a movie called The Jane Mansfield Story, I hope I'm not going to spoil anything here. But it's about uh, a young Dallas woman by the name of Jane Mansfield, brunette, by the way, who uh, is seeking to become a star in order to get the fame and fortune that she needs to raise her lovely daughter. And in order to do so, she needs to partner up with a Mr. Universe played by Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mickey Haggerty, her, her husband. Right, and father of Mirska Hargitay of Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Yeah, I think yeah. It's, I think I think I said Haggerty, which sounds like a <laughs> Harry Potter character. Uh, right, but yeah, Hargitay. <laughs> yeah, I never knew that uh, Mariska Hargitay was the child of Jane Mansfield, and uh, I, I'd never heard of Mickey Hargitay, but I was never aware yeah. that that was her parents. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that either. So the movie is just the story of her life as portrayed on CBS in 1980. Right, and how was it? Well, I'll have to say, it wasn't very good. <laughs> okay uh yeah it wasn't that it was particularly bad was it it wasn't horrible it was just kind of not very good i mean it, everyone seemed to be doing an okay job but for whatever reason it just wasn't a very very decent movie i don't know how else, how else to explain it it was a very tv movie uh very tv yeah. kind of thing a lot of the kind of strange edits yeah um but i don't know exactly what i can fault it was just i enjoyed seeing the movie but i just i can't bring myself to say it was very good at all (laughs) did you enjoy watching it though i did okay okay i did did you not really (laughs) are you in the opposite category you're like i didn't really enjoy it but this is a masterpiece no no um this movie I want to have a talk later, I think, in this episode, just about how we feel about biopics in general. But to me, this movie is just like the Wikipedia checklist of life (laughs) events with no tension, no pace, just a flat line. You know, (laughs) anytime you have Arnold Schwarzenegger as the narrator, it's (laughs) (laughs) a bizarre framing device. And you know what? A lot of this is... We we just reviewed... um, Wonders of the Sea 3D, right. which actually that's a good question. I mean, this is obviously the first one where he was the narrator. Sure, that we know of. Yeah, maybe we should do an episode on movies that Arnold has narrated in the future. But sorry, I cut you no, off. no, no, no. Um, I mean, this you know this level of quality is to be expected from a TV movie from the 1980s. I think, especially one that I'm guessing they weren't exactly breaking the bank on. But it just felt so flat. There's nothing in this movie. There's there's nothing it's like every relationship is synthetic and just one note there's no dimension to anything you can say like hey Lonnie Anderson's not bad at like you know approximating Jane Mansfield but like who cares (laughs) there's nothing interesting going on (laughs) that's kind of how I felt where like I, I would sit there and I'd be like watching these scenes just die in front of me with like and it's not because the actors are bad it's just because it's written at the energy level of a flatlining patient I think <laughs> have you considered though maybe the problem is us maybe maybe like 
I don't know about you, but did you get into podcasting about Arnold Schwarzenegger to talk about the Jane Mansfield story? That's a, that's the sole reason I got into Schwarzenegger podcasting. <laughs> this is the apex of my career in this podcast. Because this, this movie is, um, I think, philosophically the opposite of, say, Terminator 2. Sure. And that that's good. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. that's good. I mean, this is a workman-like, hammered-together product that was, I'm sure, just thrown up on a sleepy night because they're like, we're going to lose to soap anyway, so, <laughs> so who gives a crap? Oh, oh God. <laughs> Taxi's going to run us over. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Mash. The Korean War was on for two years and MASH was on for seven, but they right. probably still beat this movie. Like, this is a movie that I feel like, had I seen it in 1980 in TV, or on TV, I would probably be like, yeah, that was okay. But to transplant that to 2019, almost 40 years later, a movie like this does not work at all. Well, you gotta think about, like, 1980s TV culture. Sure. Right? So you just put yourself, you know, you've you've just gotten home from the warehouse. I'm just and, uh, turning on an episode of House Calls. And your wife, who's, you know, um, you know, maybe a, a stay-at-home mom or, or maybe working some gendered uh, profession at the time. She's a teacher, say. Sure. And, you know, and you, you turn the TV on, you got about 12 channels. Right. At CBS. They, they've 12, got 12 seems generous. They, I think it's less than 12. CBS, they've got some good stuff. Uh, sure. You know, and you're tired of watching the public broadcaster. And, and you know what? This is pre-VHS. Why aren't I watching The Omen? Well, you know, maybe they don't like horror. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but edited for TV horror. The Omen must be really lousy on TV, by the way. Would it be edited? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. But, you know, you sit down and you're like, oh, honey, let's watch the Jane Mansfield story. <laughs> you can't even say it with a straight face. Uh, it's got that woman from WKRP and Mr. Universe in it, playing Mr. Universe. And that is interesting in that Lonnie Anderson was the name here. People didn't know who Arnold Schwarzenegger was that well. Uh, yeah, this was like, what, three years removed from um, Pumping Iron? That came out three in 77. Yeah. But I don't know that he was like a superstar based on that. Although, you know what, I think he was pretty well known. He was pretty well known in the bodybuilding yeah. world. Sure, sure. I think he was pretty well cast, actually. As, yeah. um, you know, Mickey Hargitay, the Hungarian-American Mr. Universe from 1955. You're like, hmm... <laughs> who are we going to cast as right. as this guy? And you, you go with the, uh, you know... Ted that, Knight's busy. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Arnold, I, I hear you've... Uh, I hear you did Hercules a while back. Right. Um, good choice. Sure. <laughs> but, yeah, all of which is a kind of roundabout way of saying, I agree with you, Cam, this movie's not very good. But I kind of liked it. Okay, okay. So what did you like about it? I thought it was very inoffensive. Yes, it sure was. Um, I thought Lonnie Anderson did a fine job. Sure, so I, did, I agree. So did Arnold Schwarzenegger, actually. I, I think he probably shouldn't have been used as a narrator. <laughs> the expository scenes were a little, a little tough. Here's my problem with Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie. Okay. And it has nothing to do with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. Arnold Schwarzenegger is fine. He's early in his acting days. Like, I don't fault him for maybe not being as confident doing dramatic material as he would be later down the road. Sure. That's fine. Everyone has to grow. Uh, but this movie has the most generic romance I think I've seen in a movie in forever. Like, the relationship between 
Jane Mansfield and Mickey Hargitay is like you could jot down their entire relationship in one line bullet points and it would take up less than a cue card. It's like they meet and are like engaged in the same day. They're happy and then they break up. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and two kids pop out. But Mickey's very supportive and Jane uh, in her quest for fame becomes sure, you know, ravaged by alcoholism. Yes, in one scene. There's a turn on that one in like yeah, one it was, scene. It was a pretty quick dog leg. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> but like to me, if you give Schwarzenegger material, like you give him an actual character and a relationship that feels somewhat organic and authentic to life, this could have been really interesting. But this is like sub-sitcom level stuff. Well, I'm not going to lie. Throughout this entire movie, and maybe that's why I enjoyed it more than you. Okay. I was replacing... The Mickey Hargitay character with other characters that Schwarzenegger has played in his oh, other interesting. movies in, in my mind. John, so, John Matrix, perhaps? Yeah, so I was thinking, oh, what what would have been like if Jane Mansfield had been uh, you know, married to the Terminator? Ooh, interesting. I don't know. What would that be like? Uh, probably a shorter movie. <laughs> <laughs> Not if James Cameron directs it. <laughs> That would be something to see. I would I would love to see a remake of this movie. Yeah. Directed by James Cameron. Yeah. Uh, see what Lonnie's up to these days. I could not help but notice there are multiple scenes in this where Arnold has to serve people drinks. <laughs> Characters sit down and then Arnold is sent to go make them coffee or get them drinks. Yeah. This happens multiple times. I think they were establishing that he was second banana. To... I agree. I agree. But it's but... not like he had interesting things to do beyond this. Uh, he picked her up a lot. He did pick her up a lot. Oh, this was definitely like an advertisement for Arnold Schwarzenegger. He is introduced appearing on the May West Review. Some, I, some variety show. Was it on TV? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't either. But, I'm, I'm but, not but sure anyways, about that. the May West Ma- May show West was of not some there. kind. Yeah, May West wasn't there. No, it's just Arnold Schwarzenegger covered in oil. Yeah, just posing for like three minutes. And then uh, Jane Mansfield's like, I have to have him. And I'm like, I, I guess I get it. But... Yeah, like, there is several mentions of Arnie's physique throughout this thing. His character, you know, this real-life guy, Mickey Hargitay, sold, like, uh, weightlifting equipment and all that sort of stuff. So that was his business. This is not a dramatic stretch for Arnold, would you agree? No, not at all. <laughs> you know, Did he have to stretch it all? Uh, playing an Eastern European uh, yeah. Im- immigrant bodybuilder yeah. who's trying to make it in show business? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, yelling at uh, at his significant other for alcoholism, that's new. Like, we haven't seen Arnold play that kind of tortured role before, dealing with those sorts of issues. Well, we haven't seen him before, really. <laughs> I mean, we've seen him in The Villain and sure. Hercules. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Well, this is still new. I mean, Pretzi is a long ways away from, <laughs> from Jay Mansfield. Good throwback. <laughs> well, actually, was this before or after Stay Hungry? I believe this is after. Okay, because I'm pretty sure in Stay Hungry, he kills somebody okay. by accident. Okay. So, we, we haven't done that one yet. I still haven't seen Stay Hungry. Right, yeah. Uh, so, we'll have to see uh, where that one goes. And we'll, I think we'll be in a better position to review sure. Arnold's acting chops in the Jane Mansfield story once we dip our toes into the Stay Hungry waters. Right. Now, <laughs> let's talk a bit about Jane Mansfield here, about Lonnie Anderson's performance, because... Jane Mansfield, I've kind of done a a deep dive into kind of her backstory prep for this, and um, 
I, I watched, first off, her movie from 1957, which was adapted from her big hit Broadway uh, play called Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. The movie version co-starred uh, Tony Randall. And it's sort of a satire on the advertising industry and the birth of TV and how TV's really lame. And, uh, you know, uh, Tony Randall plays a guy who, uh, an advertising guy who, to save his career, brings Jane Mansfield in through torturous, uh, you know, convoluted means to help him with an advertising campaign. And she plays a role that, when I saw the movie, I sat there going, I can see why I'd never really heard of her. This is very much a knockoff Marilyn Monroe. Like, Marilyn Monroe is in movies like Some Like It Hot, Seven Year Itch, uh, How to Marry a Millionaire, like a lot of classic comedies. Mm -hmm. And the Jane Mansfield filmography does not boast a lot of those. And so, like, watching this movie, uh, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, I thought it was a really funny movie, but I was kind of like, huh, I, I can kind of see why she didn't necessarily blow up beyond this. She's fun in the movie, but it's a lot of that giggling and that high-pitched squeaking noises that Lonnie Anderson approximates in this movie, which I found kind of grating and annoying. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty aggravating. I was actually yeah. really happy that she didn't just stay in that character the the, the whole movie. That, yes. That they, the movie made it clear that... This was just a persona that she put on in public. Right. And so I finished up that movie and I was like, okay, well, I can kind of see why she didn't necessarily break out beyond a couple years. And I ended up having some time last night, uh, kind of later. And I just thought, you know what? I, can, I have time to watch one more. And I watched this movie called The Wayward Bus, which is totally forgotten. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> sounds pretty bad. It stars uh, Rick Jason and as uh, the Wayward Bus. <laughs> as the Wayward Bus, he drives the Wayward Bus, and uh, um, Joan Collins, TV's Joan Collins, <laughs> and it's a movie about uh, a bus. <laughs> and, is this know, like Thomas the Tank it's, Engine? No, it's in, it's in bus. Well, format? It, is, it is the bus that kind of has to keep on going. It's a melodrama about a busload of people that through bad weather have to make it to their destination. And it kind of has sequences that feel almost taken out of Wages of Fear or like early disaster movie type stuff. Okay. And uh, it has a lot of melodrama with relationship issues and all that sort of stuff. But Jane Mansfield is in the movie as a stripper who is being, you know, shuttled to her next gig, but is also really unhappy with her life and is trying to hide her career and meets a guy on the bus and kind of wants to, you know, maybe consider like a, a more normal life. And I'm watching her performance in this movie. And I actually enjoyed the movie. The movie's worth checking out. It's kind of a, you know, it's a B movie, but I thought it was a really entertaining, well done one. It's based on a John Steinbeck story, actually. Okay. Um, but I was surprised that um, when I was watching Jane Mansfield in this movie, her performance was very stripped away. It did not have any of these weird quirks that we see Lonnie Anderson doing or her doing in her other comedies and I actually thought she was really good in the in the movie like it actually had a real air of melancholy and at that point I said wait a second like I didn't realize that this was very much a performance like her doing these kind of cutesy noises because Marilyn Monroe that was kind of what she did that was her shtick right she always did that right whereas I was under the impression that's exactly what Jane Mansfield did all the time but that's not the case and so it does seem like she's someone who was much more accomplished prior to her film career in terms of acting training. Uh, she went to you know acting school for a long time. She trained under uh, some really important people. Mm -hmm. uh, she was also a musician. 
Like, this was a, a woman who was very talented. She went to acting school with Rip Torn, actually. Did she really? Yeah. And she was in, like, a comedy troupe, or, like, a theater troupe, um, that it had some really distinguished members as well. Like, it was definitely someone who had a lot of talent, I think, that just got boxed into a very narrow, pigeonholed career because of her looks, and because of what a studio at that point was willing to invest in their talent. Yeah, although uh, from from what I read about Jane Mansfield, I didn't watch any of the movies. Right. Uh, her looks actually were uh, apparently a little bit of uh, a negative selling point. It's uh, it like made her famous, but also kind of ruined her career in a way. Well, uh, just when she was starting out, this is what I yeah. read, and I mean, take it for what that's worth. Uh, apparently, her figure, which you know, um, was something something obscene. It was like a like a. 40 21 35 or something like that so she was regarded as having too large a bust for some of the advertising campaigns and stuff like that that young actresses were starting out on at the time right one thing that the movie did the gene mansfield story movie did kind of well if it did anything well at all sure did a pretty good job of showing just how good she was at turning uh her looks and in particular her figure into publicity stunts and gaining publicity that way. There was a lot of intentional wardrobe malfunctions and just attempts to grab the press's attention. And she references in the movie that her IQ is 163. That's something that I saw pop up a few places online. I couldn't find anything to verify it, but I saw the same thing. Yeah, I don't know if it's verified, but, uh, you know, at least it's the legend, apparently. But, like, you can kind of believe that this woman was probably bright. Because you get the sense she was also very focused in creating a persona and living it. The same way we would look at someone like, you know, Prince or a lot of like pop stars who create these personas and have long careers. Madonna's a good example. But like this one just didn't burn as brightly. Yeah. Well, I found a record of her school transcripts and she was a... Oh, uh, did you? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you you probably did the better deep dive than I did. Sure. But apparently she was a, you know, a solid B plus student, which is okay. I don't know if it's 163 IQ caliber, unless you're really not applying yourself at all. But does IQ really relate to your school grades? It doesn't hurt. Well, it doesn't hurt, but... I don't know. I like, can't. I can't really see. Sometimes geniuses do really bad in school because they're just unfocused. Uh, that's true. Like myself. All all of this is a way of saying like the Jane Mansfield was a lot more of a complicated figure than I think people really even think about. Like everyone thinks about how complicated a life Marilyn Monroe had and how much tragedy was tied into her existence. Whereas like I don't really think people think that much about Jane Mansfield other than her untimely death at 36 in a car accident. I feel like her death is what made her more famous, and I know that that's, again, like, been a big part of the pop culture. But what did you think of Lonnie Anderson's performance, but also her kind of window for you into this life of Jane Mansfield, who you really didn't know that much about? I thought Lonnie Anderson's performance was pretty good, but unfortunately the movie, I think, really only put uh, a pretty eggshell off-white sheen on what Jane Mansfield's life was really like. We don't get to see anything about her uh, early life. We don't get to see her uh, anything about her first marriage with Paul Mansfield. I believe they actually ignored him from sections of this movie where he would have been around. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure. I'm not 100%, but I think so. Yeah, and, and Paul Mansfield, I mean, he was a character in what I've read of Jane Mansfield's life who was popping up here and there i mean their marriage didn't work out and she obviously went on to marry uh mickey hargitay 
But so I got I got nothing against what Lonnie Anderson brought to it. She she brought I think uh, you know a, a woman who is putting on a bit of a bimbo show for the press in order to gain fame, but who is actually quite sharp and doing it for her family, and then got consumed by her waning career and ultimately alcoholism. So for what it was for a made-for-TV movie, I think Lonnie did a pretty good job. But uh, it's a shame, and maybe it's because it was a 1980 uh, made-for-TV movie, they didn't really go into the dirt around... Of anything! Jane Mansfield. Like, she she was rumored to have just countless infidelities, have all sorts of issues, being in drunken brawls near the end of her career. Um, she had, like... It's rumored, like, a love affair, a very brief one, with, like, Anton LaVey, the head of the Church of Satan. And she'd, like, gone and just sort of, uh, you know, investigated the Church of Satan briefly. There's a documentary about it on uh, on the iTunes store. I didn't watch it. But, yeah, it's called Mansfield 66-67. She was romantically linked to two Kennedys, Robert and John. Yeah, yeah. And, and she came out publicly, I think, later on in her life saying that... She really regretted uh, some of the things that she had done uh, to Mickey Hargitay and and how how she had hurt hurt him. And he was a really decent guy. And so just her her life. I mean, just reading about um, not even that deep a dive, but just reading about a few short bios of her online or or uh, out of a library book, you can get more tension and more history than this script really put on the screen. Like, did this movie give you anything in that relationship with Hargitay? Like, was there anything interesting? Uh, it was, uh, again, I, I liked it. I was like, oh, I wonder, I, I mean, I don't wonder what's going to happen because they opened with her dying in a car crash. Sure. But uh, I I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I can see the attraction because she's got a 40-inch bust and he's got... Uh, a 52-inch yeah, chest. Yeah, 52-inch chest and yeah. and biceps like cantaloupes. Sure. So you're like, okay, there's a physical attraction there. But was there an interesting material that you were watching on screen that you thought was dramatically compelling? Uh, I know you've mentioned it before, like how you know, Schwarzenegger's character had to keep getting drinks and coffee yeah. for everyone. Uh, I don't know. That was... Kind of interesting. He was very sullen and sulky every time he had to go do it. I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know why. I just wanted more. Like, just give me kind of more of an interesting window into this couple that tells me something about them as people. You know what? I wanted more too, but we didn't get it. No, we did not. So we're stuck with what we have. And this this movie is, it's a little bit of a, it's like a splinter of time. Oh my God. <laughs> but... <laughs> What? <laughs> I suppose so. What? What? I mean, oh, for God. me, like Lonnie, <laughs> for me, like Lonnie Anderson, I think nails it. Like, I think one, she looks eerily like Jane Mansfield. She does. She really does pull it off. And I would love to see her it, in a movie that deserved this performance. She pulls it off in more ways than one. Sure, sure. And it's weird how thin this feels because it's based on a book by Martha Saxton called Jane Mansfield in the American 50s. And I have to feel like this book had something to say about the time period and also her. This movie had neither. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really get much of an insight in what the 50s were like. No, and uh, this thing, this this TV movie, it was adapted from the book by uh, Stephen and Eleanor Karpf, 
who did a lot of journeyman TV projects. You know, they wrote uh, episodes of Kung Fu, Dynasty, that sort of thing. And then the teleplay was by two people, uh, Charles Dennis and Nancy Gale. Uh, Charles Dennis was the creator of a show called Marked Personal that aired 90 episodes really? between 73 and 74. It was a drama that unfolded around a human resources department of a large organization. And it starred Heather Chasen and Stephanie Beecham. Oh, so it's like the uh, 1970s version of Office Space. I guess so. And then Nancy Gale, uh, she only had one credit. And I don't, like, she had one writing credit for this. Then she only had one other credit on IMDb, and that was playing the old maid in Return of the Beverly Hillbillies in 1981. I thought you were going to say the old maid, uh, the the title character (laughs) in the uh, movie version of the game Old Maid. No, no. And so you can see it's a lot of journeyman TV writers working on this thing. There is not a lot of uh, creative spark being brought to the table. These are people used to cranking stories out on a deadline. And the actors that are around them too. Uh, a lot of people who, as I was watching, a lot of the kind of actors who you're like squinting at, you're like, that guy looks familiar from somewhere. Yeah, I think he was on an episode of House Calls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, these you, you hit the nail on the head, I think. These journeyman character actors who, uh, I mean, they're working actors. Yeah, and it was directed by Dick Lowry, who uh, did a lot of TV movies, like tons and tons of them. But some of the notable ones, he did the Gambler series with Kenny Rogers, which I, did you ever see those? No, I didn't. I didn't either. I just remember commercials for them all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he did the In the Line of Duty series. They were a bunch of TV movies. I didn't see those. He was a producer on those as well. Uh, he did Project ALF. I'm guessing it involves ALF. Like the puppet? I think so. Like, like hey Willie, <laughs> we're going to Melmac. <laughs> oh, well, give me a cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he also directed Archie to Riverdale and back again, the Archie reunion movie. Do you remember this in the nineties? Uh, I, I think know, I do. Kind of. I don't remember much about it, but I remember it being there. I never saw it, but I was a rabid reader of Archie comics at the time, and I had the adaptation, the comic book adaptation of it. I think I still might have it somewhere, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and uh, I remember seeing ads for this movie, and I wanted to watch it, and I never saw it. I will say this. I tracked down a VHS of it years and years and years and years later. I never was able to watch it because my VCR broke. But if you go to YouTube, I plead all of you, this is totally worth your time. Go to YouTube and look up the Jughead Sugar Sugar performance. It's a rap number. It is Perhaps the greatest thing ever committed to the internet. Maybe we can put a link to that in the uh, show notes. Possibly, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a good idea. But anyway, so Dick Lowry did that. He also did uh, two movies that were in theaters that I think are actually kind of notable. He did Smokey and the Bandit 3, which even Burt Reynolds didn't show up for. The, the, but The third most uh, notable uh, Smokey and the Bandit? Yeah, Jackie Gleason's the star of that one, I believe. I never saw that one. I only saw the first. Uh, but he also worked second unit on Joe Dante's Piranha. Which is a movie that I love. Maybe brings us to the a very tangential link to James Cameron, who uh, is alleged to have directed Piranha 2. Or at least a day or two of it. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, I, again, like, this is a, a group not known for a lot of great fare. It's a lot of middling projects, uh, other than Piranha, which is amazing. Uh, and it was edited by Corey Ellers, who edited Jaws 3D. I was so excited when I found that detail. 
<laughs> so excited. I'm, I'm, I'm glad someone was. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk a little more about this. One of my biggest problems, and this isn't reserved for this one. This is one of the worst cases I've watched in a long time, though. With biopics, is the way they just kind of are like Wikipedia entries, where you are just... Right. It's like they bite off more than they can chew. You know, they don't pick one specific story. They're just like, yeah, let's just tell like eight years. And you just get kind of this greatest hits of life events, which is what this does in like really superficial detail. But you know what? You could say the same thing about like Bohemian Rhapsody, which came out last year. It kind of does the same thing where it's just like, here's a bunch of events. You know, sometimes you'll see one of these that's a little better than the other. But do you enjoy this form of storytelling? I confess I'm not normally a big fan of biopics. Yeah. I, I find that they, they're they not quite as dramatic as a drama, and they're not quite as real as real life. Right. And and something for me anyways usually gets lost in translation. There's a there's a few that I've enjoyed, but they're not my they're not my go-to genre. Right. I mean like I like the ones like say like Steve Jobs with uh with Michael Fassbender mm-hmm. where it picks like four key events and tells the stories of those individual events. Like I think you could have done maybe a story about Jane Mansfield shooting one of her movies and built a drama around that and maybe you could have something around tied around her marriage at the time. Something like that you might get more dramatic interest out of. And look, that's a whole other movie than what this is. But that's the sort of thing that interests me more and I find tends to be more entertaining. Whereas like this, you're just like, I mean, this is not a long movie. It's 90 minutes. And you are just like steamrolling through all of these major life events. It definitely feels a little longer than 90 minutes. And I want to just dial back what I was saying earlier because I feel like I don't want to leave the impression that I'm (laughs) coming to the... uh, the unnecessary or unwarranted defense of this film. This this movie is kind of a piece of garbage. Right. I just kind of liked it. I don't. I don't know what to say. Sure. Um, That's fair. Yeah. But the. But I, I. I do hear what you're saying. I mean, it it picks up at a really weird point. I mean, most of these biopics start off with you know, some young, fresh-faced, innocent young lady, and we kind of just get right in the middle where we're at a post-divorce, post-first child Jane Mansfield. Right, working in a movie theater. Yeah, and and then just, um, you know, decides through her uh, agent, Bob Garrett, uh, decides to, you know, take on this uh, bimbo kind of persona with wardrobe malfunctions and publicity stunts and everything else and becomes in the course of a year very famous and and the most photographed and published actress in all of Hollywood. It feels like and, a very simple journey. And that's I, right. my guess is it was not. And then we alluded to it before and then everything's just going pretty good. There's a little bit of conflict uh with the Fox movie exec Gerald Conway played by GD Spradlin who again you'll recognize him in dozens of things. Yeah. Uh but yeah she you know there's a little bit of conflict there she gets a little bit shut out of the movie business and then in about 30 seconds of movie time boom she's an alcoholic i would have liked more about her actual film productions just something give me something like i the most we really get is arnold schwarzenegger mentioning that who spoiled rock hunter uh the movie didn't do well and then we see the premiere party for uh, when uh, she had her big debut, The Girl Can't Help It. But, like, you know, just give me a little bit of detail. What I actually found the most interesting thing this movie really offered me 
was apparently how important this project, a, a biopic of Jean Harlow was to her and how uh, Jane Mansfield desperately wanted to play Jean Harlow mm-hmm. in kind of a bid for, you know, to be a, taken seriously as an actress and how Fox was just like, no, we don't, we aren't going to make this. And I, I, I thought that was really interesting. Like, I, I kind of find the behind the scenes details on Hollywood of that era more interesting than this fairly cozy domestic life that doesn't really offer a lot of ups and downs. Yeah, no, I agree. And maybe that's what this movie suffers from is, uh, in more ways than one, the fact that it's a TV movie. Yeah. Because not only is Jane Mansfield's life not particularly well suited for a TV movie, like it's a, it's kind of a sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of yeah kind of life, you know, ending with a... Uh, uh, you know, a very early and tragic death, but it's also the, I mean, we could, you could tell, and we, we were kind of rolling our eyes a little bit when we were watching it, the, the tinkling piano score. Yeah. And the, well, the production values were pretty, pretty low. Yes. Um, and the impression I got is like, it's very telling that there's not a single picture or clip uh, of the actual Jane Mansfield yeah. in this, in this movie. And, um, and I, I, it's almost, uh, it's almost like a necessity for a biopic to end with, you know, the still shot or the iconic shot or a clip mm-hmm. of the individual to, you know, really shed some additional light on the tragedy or whatever it is you're trying to do. Sure. Uh, I think they probably just couldn't get that kind of image licensed. They, they talk about the ex- how extravagant the wedding's going to be, <laughs> and then they just cut to like a, a couple of photos. Yeah, just basically the equivalent of a you know a newspaper spinning towards the screen and stopping sure. like extravagant wedding occurs, yeah. and then cutting to a different scene. Well, extras are expensive. They sure are. So are carnations. But like I think of like the TV biopics I saw, like Behind the Candelabra with Michael Douglas as Liberace, or Introducing Dorothy Dandridge with Halle Berry, which was a they, those were both HBO movies, and I would be curious to see what like HBO could do with you know, the Jane Mansfield story. Cause I actually think they would bring a little more insight into it. Like those two really delved into the psychology of those two celebrities. And one of them is very much about that person. And the other is about that person from the point of view of someone else. So like, it's not doing the same angle in both of those movies, but uh, this one just feels it's told from Schwarzenegger's point of view. And I think it's really troublesome that the movie opens with him telling these very idealized stories like it's like oh this was where jane had her big premiere oh jane was so pretty in her pink car or whatever and it's like we are basically being set up right from the the top that this is just like a very rose-colored glasses glossy look at jane mansfield from the point of view of someone who thinks she's apparently the most amazing human being ever born yeah uh, the schwarzenegger's role in this movie was was kind of troublesome like it it was the wrong way to use schwarzenegger and his character i i, I he was fine i think as mickey uh Hargate, but uh as a as the narrator here who's talking to this never really identified reporter or biographer who, we were baffled by that we don't know what she is but they're this, just going over uh, photo albums yeah set the scene set the scene tony what is happening at that intro at the book ending sections it is um following jane mansfield's death 
and a now sandy-haired Arnold Schwarzenegger, who really looks like the same Arnold Schwarzenegger with a little bit of flour in his hair. Yeah, uh, he was is, baking a cake. Is meeting with a uh, a woman in a uh, very eighties like kind of business attire, yeah, or? padded shoulder uh, blazer of some kind. Sure, who's I guess a biographer or a historian or reporter? We don't really know, or a fan. And they're just sitting in the living room going over photo albums and and that's the mechanism that's used to propel this movie from scene to scene and i think schwarzenegger did a pretty decent job in this movie for most of the time but i don't know why they chose to use him as the narrator i mean they did kind of the same thing and we talked about in our previous episode in the villain right yeah um, which had its own problems he's a lot more developed here but he's he's still honing his chops a bit. Yeah, it, it was very weird to make him your like narrator. I just I still don't understand why they would do that. It's it's strange that they would even even have a narrator. Yes. Uh, in in a movie like this, like it's totally unnecessary. I feel like a narrator makes more sense. I mean, I know they use narrators in conventional biopics all the time. That's not unusual. But I feel like you want a narrator more to like help focus something where it could be confusing, whereas there's nothing confusing about this movie. Exactly. It's very laid out and pretty packed stuff. So I, I don't really get that. And, and again, and maybe that goes to the format, because there's also a fair amount of filler in this movie. We, we watched at least a couple of times in the movie, we watched exactly the same thing yeah. played again. So I've, I've got to believe maybe this movie was broken up, Sure. Uh, you know, it was like they used to do, they'd have to be continued. I don't think so. It was no. one night. No, it was a two-hour block that night. But yeah, it, it opened with the scene of Jane Mansfield in the car that's that's going to crash. And then it ended with that same scene. And not just a cut, but, you know, a significant amount of footage. And, and likewise, throughout the movie, Arnold and Lonnie... Uh, frolicking in the fields, living the good life, or, or, or engaging in whatever stage of their life they needed to be in. And then it would cut fairly quickly to Arnold Schwarzenegger then narrating over still photographs of those same scenes for yeah. for more than a few seconds and it was it was kind of a strange um strange choice to do that yeah and the only thing that i can think of as to why they made that choice is because it's tv the production values were low yeah. and they were trying to fill an hour and a half sure sure yeah the filler that really drove me nuts was that they opened and closed with maybe like two or three minutes of that same footage of the the car crash that drove me nuts because usually in a movie or tv show or whatever where you're doing that technique the second time you see it you've been given information that makes you recontextualize how you're watching it the second time this movie did not <laughs> there's nothing in the preceding 87 minutes or whatever that would make you look at this two minutes of footage any differently than you did at the beginning yeah, this, and so you're just watching the same thing over again. This is no pumpkin and honey bunny. No, definitely not. You know, it's not like rewatching the usual suspects or something after <laughs> yeah. for the second time. You know, you're not going to be like, oh my god. Like, we know what happened, and then we knew what happened the second time it comes around as well. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, like I said, it's tough to know why they would do that except for, you know, <laughs> except for a lack of budget. No, it's true. I mean, yeah. 90 minutes, and I think it feels a little stretched to 90 minutes. Um, I, I want to talk briefly about a character who really had, I think, both of us scratching our head. And that is her childhood friend, Carol Sue Peters, played by Kathleen Lloyd. 
this character you had a couple cutting comments about over the course of the movie i thought were pretty funny and very accurate actually carol sue is first seen working at the movie theater with uh jane mansfield before the, before jane mansfield is at all famous basically establishing her as the only other female character in this movie and the only person that knows jane mansfield yeah. in the world other than her daughter uh, but yes, yeah, so Jane gets big and whatever, and then Carol Sue just shows up out of the blue and apparently just starts working for her that day. And this character is, <laughs> I would be surprised if Carol Sue is a real person. This feels like an amalgamation of every personal assistant that Jane Mansfield ever had. Yeah. Well, she's certainly not much of a character at all. Does this character have a life? No, she shows up out of the blue, like you said, starts working for Jane Mansfield, just hangs around for, you know, several years of Jane time. Yeah. Nothing at all is done to establish her importance in Jane Mansfield's life or establish any kind of rapport or why the audience should care about her. And then one day, Jane Mansfield's drinking near the end of the movie, and she just says, I can't do this anymore. I've got to leave. Yeah. And then uh, she gets up and she leaves. And it's supposed to be a, a big dramatic event, but it's not. Because you're like, okay, see you later, Carol Sue. We, we never really cared about you. Yeah, I like the at one point you were like, thanks for that exposition. <laughs> yeah, she definitely spouted a lot of expository dialogue. Yeah, and the other funny moment with her is a scene where Jane Mansfield is in a bathtub. And Carol Sue is just pouring champagne on, on her in the bathtub. <laughs> Now, Tony, I have a question for you. If I ever become famous, will you pour champagne on me while I'm in the bathtub? Uh, maybe not champagne, maybe some stag chili. <laughs> that was very weird. There's, I, there's no way I could convince any friend of mine to pour champagne on me in the bathtub. You could convince me. Well, okay, well, thank you. As, as long as it's stag chili. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> As we start to wrap up this movie, I was curious how you felt about the tragic elements of Jane Mansfield's story. Like, do you feel like the alcoholism had an impact dramatically or the divorce from Mar uh, Hargitay? Did, like, either of these things feel like they were particularly, you know, engrossing or had some sort of emotional impact on you? Not really, if I'm being honest. Like the the alcoholism. I mean, Lonnie Anderson did a, an excellent job of, um, you know, sluicing around cocktails and spilling out addresses. Sure. But uh, I was never really that convinced. You're like, oh, oh, she's she's an alcoholic now. And then when Mickey Hargitay left the relationship, it wasn't really even that dramatic. It was more like, okay, I'll see you later. Yeah. And then he yeah. runs into the agent, Bob Garrett, in the in the street. And they're like, how are things going? And he's like, yeah. oh, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty pretty low-impact drama as far as it goes. The movie The Wayward Bus has a relationship that falls apart early in the movie. There is far more dramatic stakes going on in that relationship than anything going on here. I mean, I'm like, Hargitay seems like an okay guy. He's just like, okay, I gotta go. <laughs> and she doesn't seem that bitter about it either. Seems pretty uh, amicable. And then she's married to another guy, apparently. Third husband's completely ignored by the movie, pretty much. Yeah, and they, they established that even after they're divorced, she still calls him. It's like, hey, how's it going, yeah. uh, Mickey? Yeah. You know, still doing some bodybuilding. I got a show. You should come down and see it. Yeah. 
it's like okay. Um, her nightclub act was yeah, something else, I suppose. You know, I was I was gonna, and it'll be a good good opportunity for us to maybe leave the podcast off on that because I was gonna ask because uh, at the start of this movie, I know that I said you know it's not gonna be a biopic without a musical number. Sure. Uh, and we got it. We did. What did you What did you think of that? Not much. I it wasn't supposed to be good, right? I don't think so. I I think it was actually. I thought it was maybe one of the more compelling parts of the movie because well, it was because it's in Vegas in like the nineteen sixties. Vegas to me in the sixties is like unrecognizable to me. I'm always fascinated when I see movies set there because I go to Vegas quite a lot every year uh, for like the last I don't know ten years, I guess. And uh, when I see old Vegas movies, I'm just like, where is this place? I mean, I've been to the old strip. Even that doesn't look like what I see in these movies. And so I'm always kind of interested when I see these like dingy lounge acts in Vegas. It's so unlike anything I've ever seen. Have you ever been in a dingy lounge act? Uh, I don't want to say on the air. (laughs) (laughs) But have you ever been in something like this where it's like sparsely attended, some lounge singer singing, and like there's like five people, one of which is like... (laughs) <laughs> uh again i don't I, I don't want to get too personal here, <laughs> but um but no i know what you mean that i thought they did a pretty good job i mean as far as stereotypical sleazy uh you've hit rock bottom lounge acts go they, they i thought that was maybe the best part of the film in terms of showing uh yeah showing that on screen yeah just a bunch of bunch of audience members who are either dirt bags or not really interested in being there at all right and just kind of a mediocre burlesque lounge performance. Sure. Uh, I was like, oh, yeah. So she's really fallen from grace. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got to give props to Jane Mansfield. Like, she was definitely a performer and gave it her all. Uh, and the circumstances were often working against her right to the end of her career. Well, but, I am hesitant to take too much of this movie and apply it to the actual Jane Mansfield's I know. life. That's who, how I feel, too. Who knows what her actual life was like and who knows uh what her career was like near the end of her life yeah so let's just kind of seg into just final thoughts and wrap up this movie my final thought is don't watch this movie read a book about jane mansfield i'm sure it's probably far far better or even uh check out the uh you must remember this podcast with uh karina longworth i think she's probably done an episode on jane mansfield that in half an hour probably has far more to say about her as an icon than this movie does in 90 minutes. And I'm going to take I'm going to take the opposite position. I'd say that if you're a Schwarzenegger fan, the Jane Mansfield story is absolutely essential viewing because this is the <laughs> It's up there with T2 and Total Recall. No, hear me out here. No, no. Yeah, this is Schwarzenegger's really last foray into in the small time before um, before going on to do Conan the Barbarian. So the Jane Mansfield story is 1980. Conan the Barbarian is 1982. Uh, we've seen him develop through uh, Hercules in New York and the villain. And there's a... We haven't seen Stay Hungry yet, but we've seen him progress and his acting skills are getting better and better and better. And it's just two years out before he really hits the big time. That's a good point, actually. You are right. Like, I do think Arnold has more presence in this TV movie than he didn't say, like, the villain. You know, like, the villain definitely feels like an actor who's a little bit stranded. Whereas, like, I feel like Arnold is at least owning his scenes at this point. He doesn't feel like kind of that lost puppy. 
you know, or someone who's just kind of dabbling in acting. It seems like he's actually ready to become an actor. So, you know what? You are right. Academically speaking, for Arnold fans, I think this is worth watching. But for those looking for a good movie, this is the wrong place to be looking. <laughs> and I'm going to jump in there. I'm going to say, I agree, this is not a good movie. But I actually think it's kind of a watchable movie. So, uh, it's it's available for free on YouTube. At least it is now, if we don't get arrested. Sure. It doesn't get pulled down by the pirate police. Uh Who's going to pull it down? Uh, Dick Lowry. <laughs> the Dick Lowry uh, estate. He's too busy counting his piranha residuals. <laughs> but the movie is, uh, it's clearly quite bad. Yes. But again, uh, I, I think it's pretty watchable. It's pretty enjoyable. I don't know if you need to sit there sharpening your pencil and, and making notes the way you might for Das Boot. Sure. But, you know, put it on YouTube and if you don't like it, you can always... Uh, uh, divide it into more manageable chunks or uh, or turn it off halfway through. It's 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 worth checking out. Sure. Yeah, I, that is one thing I'll say. It's not painful to watch. It's not like a movie that's so bad you're going to be like clawing at your skin out of boredom. It's, it's just so synthetic and flat. That's its problem. It's just you watch it and you'll remember nothing after you've watched it pretty much. That's kind of the way I feel about it. But uh, I think that wraps up the Jane Mansfield story. Tony, what are we doing next time? You know, Cam, we've been exploring some of Schwarzenegger's later stuff uh, more recently, and we've been looking at maybe some more special episodes. We did the uh, Andrew Vanya retrospective uh, on our last episode. So it's been a while since we went back and did something from the classic Schwarzenegger canon. So Yeah, no uh, kidding. Our first episode was Conan the Barbarian, and that seems ages ago. And it's hard to believe that we haven't done Conan the Destroyer yet, but that's what we're going to do. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait either. I think that's going to be really fun. <laughs> that's going to be a Divoom episode. <laughs> a little Jane Mansfield joke there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's going to get that no, unless, no. <laughs> unless they've taken the time to, to turn it on before listening. Okay, you can of course find us on Twitter at ArnieGenPod or email us at ArnieGenPod at gmail.com. You can also, of course, leave reviews for us on iTunes or Stitch or whatever podcast platform you're using. It would help us immensely. And make us as famous as Jane Mansfield yearned to be. Yeah, it doesn't take long. If you have a chance, just uh, give us a rating. It just does help us get up on the list. That's right. You can find me at Cam, <laughs> V as in voluptuous icon Smith, on Twitter. Uh, and you can find me, uh, Tony G, at arnigeddon.com. Uh, you can, of course, check out our website and download direct from the source uh, at uh, www.arnigan.com Okay, so we'll be back with Conan the Destroyer. Keep well away or expect to be burnt as a sacrifice Because the lady's much too much too hot to handle Too hot to handle